Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school, you're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Body Bags with Joseph Scott Morgan. people nowadays give young folks the advice, follow your passion. I don't necessarily believe that advice. I think you should choose something that uh, you can make a living at, and then in your off time, you follow your passion. But today, we're going to take a look at a guy that did, in fact, follow a passion that he has. As a matter of fact, he followed it all over the United States, and it led him down some very, very dark paths. As a matter of fact, it led him down a path that wound up terminating at a location where he was infamously crowned as perhaps the most prolific serial killer the United States has ever known. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about Samuel Little, a serial killer who has now since passed on But more importantly, we're going to talk about one of his victims, 
a victim that has remained unidentified since 1977. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and this is Body Bags. Dave Mack is with me. He's a senior crime reporter for Crime Online. Dave, I'm going to throw a trick question at you here. It's not really a trick question. It's something I, you got to you got to kind of dig back through your files. I want to see if you can, off the top of your head, give me an idea as to how many states in the United States you visited. Maybe 17, 18, eight, maybe 20. 17, 18. Okay. What's the area of the country that you probably have the least least amount of experience with traveling to? Let's see. The from like Wyoming, Montana, Oregon, Washington State. That area when you go up to towards Canada, I got nothing there. It's kind of the opposite for me. I've been up in those areas, but I've never been to the northeastern corridor further north and well you know i have i mean i have uh, but the places i'd really like to go like maine and vermont and new hampshire and upstate new york you know particularly in the fall i think that's a lot of people out there at least that's a dream trip for them if you've never been you need to go now i would love to I, I really would and that's that's something that my wife and i are are passionate about i mean it is you know i, I talked about you know following passions and that sort of thing we love we love travel. I think about all of the money I, I wasted on my kids when they were growing up, going to amusement parks, of all things. And our life and their lives became so much more rich when we finally took them to Great Britain and started going there and taking side trips and, and those sorts of things. And it was, uh, I think, and lament, lament the fact. But, you know, today's topic on body bags is actually Samuel Little. And Samuel Little's been gone now for a couple of years, I guess. And he allegedly, the most prolific serial killer to date, as many as 93 homicides. A lot of this rests in the fact that he admitted to so many, so many deaths and had an interesting way of recalling them. Have you heard very much about Samuel Little, Dave? I've actually done a couple of shows on him and his paintings and things, but you mentioned the most prolific serial killer in the U.S. in U.S. history. When you look at some of these prolific serial killers, I tend to lean towards Henry Lee Lucas that probably lied about two thirds of what he did. Whereas in the case of Samuel Little, he actually did not admit until much later in life, just prior to his death, actually what he had done in terms of numbers. That's why I kind of look at, you know, Henry Lee Lucas, the chief liar, and Samuel Little, who only admitted it when he knew I'm in jail the rest of my life anyway. And actually, an interesting little side note, when I was still working in New Orleans, Henry Lucas's partner, Otis Tool, if you're familiar with that, he actually showed up in New Orleans, but he showed up in handcuffs. Remember, those guys were, they had a lot of bravado about them. And they were one of these dual teams of serial perpetrators. And he would go about trying to get free trips, essentially saying, yeah, I think I killed somebody here at that particular time. And I'm not going to go into all of the gory details, but one of my dear friends that was the commander of the homicide section at that time actually had to escort him around, Otis Tool. And it's a weird name, Otis. It's spelled like Otis, but he preferred for everybody to call him Otis. And so he was certainly a character. Sam Little 
you wouldn't know what he was you you wouldn't know that he was there i think he just kind of melded into the background and he pursued and hunted and he he really was truly a hunter dave these people that are very very defenseless as a matter of fact take a wild guess as to a commonality that many of the victims had as far as a, an an occupation goes female homeless drug addict and prostitution as a career yeah because it's again it's something that's it's almost rote in our field, but those are the individuals that kind of slip through the cracks and nobody really takes notice of if they go missing because they live in a very high risk environment most of the time. They're interacting with total, and I mean total strangers in very dark, seedy areas, and you never know what someone's intent is. The victims, meantime, their intent is just to live hour to hour, you know, just to exist and survive. And to get a food or maybe have a roof over their head for a short period of time, have a few bucks in their pocket. But when you get an individual that is a predator that's out there that has literally, and by the admission of several investigators that work Samuel Little's cases, he's one of these people that perfected his craft. Perfected. When you begin to think about this, it's a really horrible thing to consider that he had gotten it down to a fine science. And I think, you know, to be honest with you, Dave, I think that what caught up to Sam Little in the end was actually his age. I think he just kind of aged out. He's one of these people that actually survived to a ripe old age, even though he was incarcerated. You know, the one thing about uh, Samuel Little is that in looking at the man's background, I try to figure out what made this guy turn out the way he did. And, he was born in 1940. He had his first big arrest. The first time he was caught was a break-in and entering charge when he was 16. And if I'm not mistaken, even then, when they, you know, he's a minor, and they were writing down where his mother was, and they didn't know. Whereabouts unknown at 16. And think about that, okay? Samuel Little, breaking and entering at the age of 16 in 1956, and they don't even know where his mother is. So this guy had the ability to move in many different directions. He didn't have anything holding him back. There was no home base to check in. There was no no parental figure there for direction or for hope for the future if you change your ways kind of thing that many of us take for granted. His thieving career began early and stayed that way, and that's why he is considered called one of the most prolific serial killers in American history. But again, I don't know how many are real and how many aren't. I don't think he knew. When you get right down to it. I don't think he did either. And to back up just a little bit, he had alleged that when they kind of did a deep dive on him while he was incarcerated out in California, which is, by the way, that that's where he, he actually died. He, he said he started having these fantasies, choking out females, even as a young child. He had a, a distinct memory of that going back all those years. Wasn't it a teacher that he had this memory of a teacher of him touching her neck? Yeah, I think it was like a kindergarten teacher. Yeah, kind- kindergarten or first grade teacher or something like that. Yeah, that he he had this idea about choking her out. And we could go into all the psycholo- psychology that's behind this. But at a base level, you know, I know kids get angry and that sort of thing. Lord knows I've seen mine angry. But to what extent do they begin to fantasize, even at a young age? And that's that's certainly interesting. Bring down this kind of horror 
or, or they're, at least they're thinking about it at that young age. And so if that becomes kind of like a compulsion in your life, you begin to think about it. That's your driver. That, that's the reason I started out, you know, kind of talking about vocation as opposed to avocation, you know, passions. Some of these individuals, this is their their main focus. Their main focus, obviously, many of these individuals is to get to the next victim. It's like swinging from vine to vine. And that's what they're looking to do. Everything else in their life is kind of a, it's a peripheral issue. They're thinking about, do I need to get a job? We think about, well, I got to keep the lights on. I got to pay the bills, that sort of thing. Well, maybe so. But for them, that was just an aside. If I can go steal from somebody, if I can, you know, do an armed robbery, if I can shake somebody down in some way, maybe sell a little dope. Because at the end of the day, all I want to do is sexually assault women and choke them to death. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and a big shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing free samples. I live in an area where allergies are a day-to-day issue, and finding an over-the-counter option for relief is like the holy grail. I use Astapro, and I strongly recommend you give it a try. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray, and it's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays can take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. From a period ranging from roughly 1970, we think, until... 2005, Samuel Little traveled to 19 individual states and perpetrated as many as 93 homicides over that period of time. How in the world do you not get caught during that huge gap of time? I mean, we're talking about a massive bit of history here. Chronologically, you know, you you think about that and it is, it's something. It's hard to under understand this it's hard to make sense of it and i think that probably at least in my experience one of the most difficult things is how the families make sense of it uh, particularly when you've got individual victim who has been probably forgotten by the family to a certain degree and then they just don't see them anymore maybe there were sporadic phone calls maybe there were letters maybe there were cards maybe there was contact at the holidays but all of a sudden we don't know what happened to her She's vanished. Interesting to point out, Joe, that uh, in the time period we're looking at, okay, pre-2005, this is pre-smartphone. This is uh, the last few years of uh, Samuel Little's killing spree, if you want to call it that. But during, you know, that was when cell phones and, and things like that started coming into play. But when you look at, according to him, his first murder taking place in 1970, going from there to 2005, a majority of that time, there was a real transition in how law enforcement solved crimes. I mean, you didn't have DNA like we expect it now. You know, solving a crime now, we kind of, we're, TV shows have, have burned us with this, but we think the average person that uh, you go to a crime scene, you find a drop of blood, and there we go, we got the killer's DNA. Here it is. It's not the way it was. How did they solve crimes back in the pre-DNA days, Joe? What did they do when, first of all, you mentioned you've got somebody who is on the outside of what we consider normal behavior society. You've got some, they didn't have cell phones, as I mentioned, no email, no internet. And where you would have a a daughter that had gone wayward, didn't communicate with the family often. And there was no real way of tracking them down. So when they do pass and they're an unidentified individual, being a Jane Doe, for example, uh, Macon's Jane Doe comes to mind. but. The family doesn't even know where to begin looking. The police don't know who she is, and the people they can talk to to find out are street people who don't have the best recollections. You don't have DNA. You've got fingerprints if the person's been busted and you can match those up. But how did you solve a crime in the 70s when you've got a dead, you know, a a person on your hands that nobody's looking for? You're a mind reader. I I can't believe you're asking me this question because it's the actions that that were taken in Macon, Georgia back in 1977 that brought us to this point. And kind of a background, you're right, we didn't have the fine point. And I, I, love, to, <laughs> I love to put it 
uh, that way. I'm kind of a simple guy. And so if you imagine a number one pencil when you're in the first grade and that big blunted end on it, and imagine a modern mechanical pencil that has this micro tip on it, that's where we are. That's where we've come from. And the the blunted point uh, to biological evidence back then was essentially blood typing. When we're talking about pure biology, pure biological tiebacks, and that was reliant upon a couple of factors. First off, did you have sample? Were you able to separate, say, for instance, in the case of a rape victim, the, the rape victim's blood or the murder victim slash sexual assault victim's blood from the killer's blood? And then if you've got the killer's blood, what's the sourcing of the blood? Did he cut himself in the midst of it? Was he shot? Was he punched and he was bleeding from his lip? Or was he what you refer to as a secretor. And back then that was a big deal. And it's still kind of a big deal. But, you know, when you think about secretor, secretors in their saliva and then in their in seminal sample and to a certain degree in fecal uh, sample as well, uh, secretors, uh, they make up, I, I know I'm going to get this wrong. It seems like 35 to 40% of the population will secrete red blood cells in into one of these samples, all right? So if you have ejaculate at the scene and you have a secretor, there's a chance that you will actually find uh, find a red blood cell in there. And if that's the case, then you can type it. But think about the types. We've got A, B, then we've got A, B, and O. And so those are your only choices. I mean, you have O pos, O neg, you know, B pos, B neg, A pos, A neg, and then you got A, B pos, A, B neg. But beyond that, that that's as far down as you could really narrow it. And then you you couple that with, well, if there's fingerprints left behind, or you can look for uh, what's referred to as hair morphology. So if somebody, for instance, shed hair at a scene, you can type the hair back racially. You can say, well, this is an African-American, this is Native American, this is Caucasian, this is Asian, that sort of thing. But that's about as fine a point that you can put on it. But still, back then, we were doing rape kits. And it was important to do those. And I'm amazed now what they can kind of conjure up. Joe, I hate to interrupt, but what is in a rape kit? I hear the term used all the time, but I have no idea. Well, this is going to be kind of graphic, but our listeners are used to it. I'll, I'll go ahead and tell you what's in it. With a rape kit, it, it comes with uh, swabs, essentially. Okay, so you're going to swab... And when I say swab, I'm not talking about like if you've taken a, a DNA sample test where they do a, uh, a cheek scraping on you, where you kind of scrape it for 30 seconds, then you submit it. It's not like that. With swabs, if anybody has ever been to the doctor's office and you've seen these really long wooden handled Q-tip swabs, okay, you take a grouping of the swabs and you kind of cluster them together and those will be inserted literally into each orifice of the body, besides the nose and the ears, they are left to sit there, okay? And you have to give those items a moment to absorb everything that is in that environment. Once those have had sufficient amount of time to absorb, you withdraw them, and then you take a glass slide, like when you think about microscopy, you know, where you're looking through a microscope, and you do a smear on a slide with them, and you seal those up. You also seal the seal the swabs up as well. 
and those are sent off. Sometimes they're left to dry for a few moments and they can, or for a day sometimes, and they're allowed to, you know, kind of set in. But you're going to do an initial smear on those. And all of that's going to be submitted now. Also contained within the rape kit, you'll find nail clippers where you can actually clip the nails and those go into kind of an onion type of onion paper. It looks like onion paper is kind of thin and you collect the nails, but not before you scrape them. And those are done with actually what looks like a cuticle tool that you push or a wooden cuticle tool where you scrape underneath and what you're looking for there are skin cells. And you're also going to do hair pluckings. So you'll do head pluckings and you'll do pubic pluckings to get hair for comparison. And many times you'll do combings as well. So if you have in the pubic area, you can actually take a comb and run it through that area, okay? And whatever you collect on that comb, that sample is set aside, and that can be analyzed. And there you're looking at the morphology of the follicle itself, of the hair follicle, to try to get an idea, first off, if it's human versus animal, if there's something caught up in there, in that cluster of hairs. And then perhaps you can tell if, if there's another human other than the one that you have. All right. See what I'm saying? And so you've got that collection, that static collection. So all of that goes into capturing just for that moment in time when you have that body and that body is the biggest piece of evidence that you have in the morgue. You capture as much evidence, as much information per that evidence uh, off of this individual and perhaps, just perhaps, the perpetrator as well. Traditionally, when you were doing a rape kit, First off, there was a chance that you were looking for ejaculate within the body of the victim. And that would, you know, you would capture that ejaculate on the swab. And also, if there was contained within that ejaculate red blood cells from the perpetrator, that's one thing. And many people would say, well, if there's, if you have a female victim and you have ejaculate within the body, that confirms that we have, in fact, had some type of sexual contact. You can't necessarily say that it was a sexual assault because if you're talking about a grouping of people, for instance, and this this adds another layer to this, which is very complicated, which goes to Samuel Little, he's preying upon whom? Well, he's preying upon individuals that are in the sex trade. So you might have individuals that have had multiple partners in the same night. Just kind of wrap your brain around that just for a second. And so how do you separate his ejaculate from someone else's ejaculate that might be present within the victim's body. And the other thing you're going to look look to with this is also, um, is there signs of, of uh, forcible rape where you have trauma to either the vaginal area or the rectal area where this, this event is being forced onto the subject? So you'll, you'll look for things like abrasions and tears and all that. I know specifically of one a series of homicides that were perpetrated by a serial killer where the individual would have masturbatory fantasies over the deceased, which happens in the post, obviously, the postmortem phase. So after they've killed them, they would masturbate on the body. And, well, that's not something that you're going to capture that sample from a rape kit. That's, that, those are external swabbings which you would use with a swab. You'd have to use saline, apply that area over the body where you think you see evidence of ejaculate on the body. And you can use alternative lighting sources in order to, you know, kind of pick that up. 
and see if it fluoresces, and then you go in and you catch that sample that way. So it's, it is a multi-layered, these cases, that's why they're so very complicated. And it amazes me, you know, when we, and it seems like the news media never learns because they'll say, well, why don't we have results yet? Why don't we have results yet? Just the process itself takes hours upon hours to conclude. It's not just about opening up a body and trying to determine the cause of death. Again, it goes back to my supposition that that the body is the biggest piece of evidence that you possess. That is a lot more involved than I thought of. You know, when I've heard the term rape kit used, I'm so glad you did break that down. It helps me to now understand what detectives are doing back in the day and now. That That is the one thing that is consistent with a rape kit done in 1977 and a rape kit done today. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. 
you know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. There are moments in time that many of us have had that work in investigations where I think retrospectively, we go back and we view ourselves as historians. When I think back to the year 1977, there's certain music that I remember. I remember just starting junior high school. I remember playing sports. I remember the smell of my mom's cooking. But 1977, in town of Macon, Georgia, along a road called Arkwright, there was a discovery that was made. The choices and the decisions that those investigators made all those years ago came to fruition all these years later where a lady was finally identified through DNA. What say you, Dave? It wasn't as simple as DNA. <laughs> That's what I say. I looked at this Joseph Scott Morgan, and I, I have to tell you that over the last few years, uh, I am so thankful that we met because you're a great guy and I like talking to you. But I've learned so much about what law enforcement investigators deal with from the moment they're called to a crime scene to the moment of conviction of the suspect. And so much is made of forensic stuff. We have television shows. Fortunes have been made on dramatizing DNA and forensic stuff that we take for granted. It's so much more involved than what any of us know. But when you've got somebody that is found dead in 1977, think about it. Jimmy Carter's the president. One of the things that we were following it then was Billy Carter urinating outside of LAX. We've got, you know, an energy crisis. We've got a lot going on back then. And yet going from Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden, all these years, all these presidents, all these things go by and there is an unidentified person and the citizens of Macon, Georgia should be thankful to have a group of men and women that are so determined to solve this that they were able to analyze what their officers did in 1977 and use that combined with the latest technology of today to actually determine beyond a shadow of a doubt, beyond a reasonable doubt, who the actual perpetrator of the crime is and who this person was. Isn't that something? You think about that all, the, all those years ago, that, that decision that law enforcement, the medical examiner at that time, or the county coroner, such as the case down in Bibb County, Georgia, which is where Macon is, that decision that they made to have this unidentified, they refer to her as Jane Doe. I think she wound up becoming, correct me if I'm wrong, Dave, didn't she, what did she refer to as Macon's? The newspaper there is called The Telegraph, and The Telegraph dubbed her Macon Jane Doe. In 1977, it was, people kind of throw this around a lot, but it was a more innocent time. Didn't really seem like it, but it truly was compared to nowadays. And you didn't have as many of these really violent events like this that would happen and something so shocking in this kind of sleepy Southern town where she's found along this road, it almost discarded as though she were trash and they knew nothing of who she was, but they thought enough at that moment in time when they did the postmortem exam on her to do one of these rape kits. 
the fact that this thing survived, that they were able to retain enough of a biological element within this kit, I think, where it tied back, it winds up tying back to Samuel Little, who in his own way had actually stated that he had killed women throughout the South, not just the South, but all over. But he he had made his way through Georgia. Do you know he he actually was originally from Georgia? He was born in Georgia. He grew up, I think, up north in Ohio, if I'm not mistaken. But he was born in Reynolds, Georgia. And so this is an area that he probably still had family in the Georgia area. Uh, he migrated around a lot. And as a result of of retaining this biological sample that they had, they were able to finally get Jane Doe of Macon, Macon Jane Doe. They were finally able to get her identified through genetic genealogy. They were actually able to identify that Samuel Little had uh, raped and, and murdered her. They were able to prove that genetically, but they didn't know her name. They didn't know who she was, but they knew that he killed her. Think about that for just a minute. They were able to solve the crime, but couldn't solve who she was. Yeah, isn't that something? This huge genetic stew is what it comes down to. You can imagine that in your mind. That might be a little off-putting you know, when you think about it, but we truly are. We're this, this huge mishmash because we're all mutts, comes down to it. But we have this, this kind of genetic stew that's brewing out there. It's hard when you're taking that, that real high-altitude view of the situation. You're thinking, how in the world are we able to get an identity on an individual from all those years ago? Because of the sample that they took at that, that particular point in time where they were able to retain a biological sample of the victim, they were able to plug that into a national database. And through her multiple lines, they were able to determine who, in fact, she was. Well, what is the forensic genealogy? I know I'm leaving out some terms here because I don't know what I'm talking about other than, you know, forensic. Uh, I know what that is, and I know genealogy. But genetic genealogy, what is it, and how does it come into play today in solving what had been previously called unsolved crimes? Yeah, not just unsolved, but in our previous context, I think unsolvable. <laughs> I, I can, I, I still remember, you know, standing over, you know, remains that you just sit there and you scratch your head and you're looking for something early on in my career and we had nothing to hang our hat on. We just knew that we would never, never be able to determine. And that there was those whispers off in the distance, you know, DNA, DNA, DNA. But, you know, there was nothing that, that had utility to it back then because it was so, so very, cumbersome. It was a cumbersome process. But with most genealogical, DNA genealogical pursuits, they have a sample that is set aside as a result of something that they've collected off of a body. Uh, one of the big tricks is, is it still viable? And what happens is that it's so fragile that it can become, the sample can become degraded over a period of time if it's not been taken well care of. And in this particular instance, it was. So when you have genetic genealogy going on, a sample can actually be submitted into a data bank that might be associated with a group like NamUs, which is a forensic group that's based, you know, it's based upon this idea that everybody deserves to be identified and there would be a static collection of the samples that are out there and you combine that with people that have been submitting samples of their own to try to determine 
their own genealogy, perhaps, which is fascinating in and of itself that we can do that nowadays. But every now and then you'll get a hit. Most of the time, who what the key to solving these cases are, relative to relatives, if you will, are cousins. We have thousands and thousands of cousins out there. Now, they, they're going to be at different degrees, obviously, but the the trick is, is that you begin to, and what these genealogists do is that they can, they combine their ability to construct genealogical trees along with the science that's involved of narrowing that path down because of all of these markers along our strands of DNA that make us individual. You know, they give us our individual characteristics, you know, where you have things like phenotyping that come in that determine, you know, our hair color and our eye color and our stature and all those sorts of things that are unique to our familial line. And suddenly, can you imagine sitting there? And I've always been fascinated by this, not being a DNA guy myself and certainly not being a genealogist, an amateur one, but not one at all. And suddenly, can you imagine, Dave, you're sitting there at your computer, you're working a case and boom, it just blasts. Uh, you've created this thing that just comes to reality. Suddenly you say, oh my God, I've got eight cousins here of this person. Who is this person? Now, what do you do with that information if you're a police officer? Well, you apply good old-fashioned shoe leather at that point, Tom. You go out and you knock on doors and you say, hey, do, do you have somebody in your family that you may be related to that's missing that you guys have not had any knowledge of in some time, after you go through that number of people, all of those cousins, sooner or later, it'll begin to narrow down your field. Well, you know, they're not starting from zero anyway. They've done in some investigation. Law enforcement has, but they've built a case on the evidence that they have. And so when those cousins do pop up, it starts filling in the blanks. We saw it happen with the Sherry Papini case a couple of years ago. Um, you know, she faked her own abduction and when everything was said and done, the sweatshirt that she was wearing the day she popped back up, they took it and they found uh, some DNA on it. I don't spit or whatever. And when they broke it down, it was actually came back to the father of the man that she was staying with her during all that time. And it was just funny because once they narrowed it down to that family name and this guy, they had their connection to Papini and went, OK, here it is. And. I, I look at these from the news standpoint of how we cover them, Joe. And whenever you see that uh, the genetic genealogy and you realize people have uploaded their own DNA to websites, uh, whether it's uh, 23andMe or whatever, and they're trying to find their own family tree. I think my brother-in-law did this, that it opens up this whole new world of potential suspects that you know, and that's there's been some legal fighting about that and what is acceptable and, you know, what is free and not. But the bottom line is if you can take this genetic genealogy and follow it back and can identify somebody who for nearly 50 years has been nothing except Macon, Jane, Macon's Jane Doe, I, I just can't think of how much better this is going to get. Many, many mysteries will potentially be unlocked as a result of this technology moving forward. And I think in the case of this poor woman who all those years ago came face to face with a monster who wrapped his hands around her throat and choked the life out of her, you're going to have many of these mysteries that will be solved. and. That's certainly the case with Yvonne Pless. 
who had remained unidentified for all these years, and finally her family has some answers. Samuel Little actually died on December 30th of 2020 in Los Angeles County uh, Area Hospital in Southern California. Uh, the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation Sources don't indicate a cause of death. And I bring that up only to make sure you understand that he was in prison uh, in his final days, Samuel Little was, and had been there for some time. He was 80 years old when he died. And at the time of his death, Yvonne Pless had not been identified. That has only taken place in the recent past. And when they did actually identify who had previously been known as Macon Jane Doe, and when the family of Yvonne Plus was notified and she was no longer a Jane Doe but was identified, again, Samuel Little already dead, uh, but her family had the opportunity to get closure. And this is, they actually issued a statement that said, we appreciate the interest in our family member's story. When Captain Jones and Miss Hutzel notified us that Yvonne had been identified, we were unaware she was deceased. We are mourning the loss of our loved one and have no comments at this time. We ask that our privacy be respected. That is the story of Macon Jane Doe, her identity, Yvonne Plus. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and this is Body Bags. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you. And how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. 
Chumba. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.